One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You may have missed it. It was over in a flash. But last weekend, Yevgeny Progozin, the brutal convicted criminal who leads the Russian Wagner mercenary group, declared war on the Russian Ministry of Defense. He left the front lines of the war in Ukraine and marched into the Russian city of Rostov, occupying the regional military headquarters. He then headed north for Moscow, carrying his demands for ousting the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shogu, and the Chief of the General Staff, Gerasimov. Commentators around the world said that this was the end of Putin, and maybe even the end of the war in Ukraine. Yet as quickly as it began, it was over. So what happened? And what can the long history of coups around the world tell us about why this coup went wrong? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to take us through this coup that wasn't a coup, we have Professor Rory Cormack on the podcast. Rory is a world expert on coup d'etats and regime change and the author of a timely book, How to Stage a Coup, and 10 other lessons from the world of secret statecraft. As such, Rory is the perfect person to place these latest seismic events into their proper historical context. Enjoy. Hi, Rory. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I can only imagine it has been an incredibly busy period, given the fact that you work on coup d'etats. You've written the book, How to Stage a Coup. You've either had all the press coming to you and asking what the hell has been going on over the weekend, or you've had perhaps certain mercenary leaders ask you uh, about how to stage better coups. Has it been a busy weekend? It has, but I was at my cousin's wedding, so I had my phone off for most of it, and it was quite bizarre. My phone was lighting up, as you can imagine. I then turned it off to be a good cousin, turned my phone back on again, and it was all over. Crazy scenes. You missed the coup. I missed the coup, because I was at a glamping-style wedding, which I must say was great fun. Well, (laughs) yeah, I'm sure it was more fun (laughs) than the coup itself. But it was almost unbelievable scenes over the weekend, wasn't it, Rory? Because we had Yevgeny Prozogin and his Wagner group of mercenaries seemingly on an unstoppable march to Moscow. And all of a sudden... It fizzled out. We thought there was going to be this removal of Putin. If you asked any of the major commentators out there, these people who all of a sudden overnight became experts on coups, then you were going to see Putin ousted within the next 24 hours. And I want to ask you why this fizzled out, why it wasn't a successful coup, or indeed even if it was a coup at all. But I feel like we need to start with just a little bit of scene setting. So perhaps tell us who exactly Prozogin is, what's his background, and who are the Wagner Group? It was a right, a r- remarkable thing. I turned my phone on at 10 o'clock on Friday night and seeing about this march going on, which was, I think, quite unpredictable. It certainly took me by a surprise. 
And so Prigozhin has always been a right-hand man of Vladimir Putin. He was famous for once being a caterer, for being a hot dog salesman, who managed to exploit the anarchy of Russia over the you know, last 10, 15 years to work his way up and to become one of Putin's most loyal and trusted servants in the dark arts, in the world, firstly, of propaganda and disinformation and troll farms and all that kind of stuff, and then becoming head of what has become known as the Wagner Group. And the Wagner Group is a mercenary organisation which has grown dramatically in size and operates in the shadows in a lot of different places in, say, Syria, for example, bolstering Assad's forces in the civil war, which has been going on there. They've been active in Africa, in Libya, say, in the anarchic security conditions post-Arab Spring. They've been doing security work allegedly in places like Mali, working around gold mines in other African countries. Um, so they're, they're busy. They've got a lot of tentacles in a lot of places and also a lot of money, money which is increasingly paid in cash and a lot of kit, so they are clearly well-backed by a state. These are not an independent mercenary group rocking around with tanks and whatever. And then recently, of course, they have had a role in Ukraine following Russia's invasion last year. So yeah, Prozokin is a big player in Russian military and in Russian covert operations and grey zone warfare. You see, that's fascinating. So this isn't just any old mercenary group. This is almost like one of Putin's private militaries and a military for Russia that allows it to uphold really important political and economic interests all around the world. In fact, one of the things that I saw as people noticed that the Wagner Group had turned heel and started to march into Russia was that they started perhaps to pull back from some of these locations around the world, destabilising the governments that they were actually trying to help up. So, you know, it was almost like a, a domino effect that was predicted. Not only would Putin fall, but Assad would fall. And then they were saying that you had Wagner forces that were holding up Maduro in Venezuela. So Venezuela might fall. I mean, much like you mentioned the Arab Spring, it was almost like you had this one small moment and it could lead to this whole unraveling of a, a challenge to the West. The West is very good at making these predictions and they don't often come true. But in this case, it just didn't come true. And none of this massive turmoil that was about to unfold and this change perhaps in the global order and this whole revolution for Russia, well, none of it took place. And and within now, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours afterwards, we're just seeing that everything appears back to normal. So what went wrong? It was all a bit wild. Some of those predictions were quite crazy, weren't they? And ultimately... You're right, Putin is still in charge, and it looks, well, Russia experts are far more expert than me, like it's, it's almost business as normal on the front lines in Ukraine. What went wrong? Well, if he wanted to launch a coup, which he adamantly says it was never the intention, but if he wanted to do it, then he went about it in entirely the wrong way. This was more in practice, whether he intended it or not, more, I would say, a uh, a military mutiny. It was fighters rising up against the military leadership and challenging Putin himself. Let's be honest here. This is a clear challenge to Putin's authority, to his rule. And this is probably the biggest consequence, if you like, is that revealing the cracks in Putin's authority. You know, he's 
presented this image for a long time of being in complete control. There was no serious risk of a coup or an overthrow or a revolution or a civil war. And now suddenly, I think this is the bigger consequence. People are asking us questions about regime stability. And he has been exposed, having to come out twice in, what, three days, launching a, you know addresses to the nation, talking about treasonous, mutinous uh, subordinates. Um, so there is a real challenge there. But what plotters wanted to do, as they put it, was to rise up and was to challenge the authority of the military leaders. If they wanted to do a coup, doing a long march to Moscow is not the way to go about it. Coups involve the, you know, the infiltration, the seizure of a, the classic definition from Lutwak, of a seizure of a small but critical segment of the state apparatus, and then using this to displace the government. And you have to do it with precision. You have to do it quickly. You have to be you have to be in Moscow. You have to take key buildings, arrest key government figures, take over the media, set up roadblocks. And it has to be done with precision, with great intelligence and very quickly. What you can't do is set up in one town or take over one town, which he seems to have done, and then work your way up 400 kilometers or whatever on a long march. That might be successful in other circumstances, but it's not a coup. It gives lots of time and space for the government to to organise and to either bomb you into oblivion, dig up that road to stop your march, or, as we saw in this case, enter some sort of shady negotiations where no one on the outside is quite sure what was agreed and by whom and what the price was. So this is all about military infighting, perhaps what we would call quite extreme inter-service rivalry, that between the Russian military itself and, of course, these private military mercenaries that have been doing a lot of the frontline work for the Russian military. And so it's all about trying to perhaps get Gerasimov removed or Shogu removed, because I think that it was alleged by the Wagner Group that they'd started to be bombed by the Russian military themselves. Yeah, they alleged that. They alleged that, which is a very dramatic allegation, they alleged that they'd been let down, they hadn't been paid, they hadn't had the weapons, the ammunition that they'd been promised. And this is fairly classic reasons for mutinies, for inter-service rivalries and for military uprisings, when the forces on the ground have just been involved in frontline warfare and then retreating slightly or, and turning their attentions upwards and saying, look, you, you let us down here. But also, we need to be under no illusion that he was challenging Putin. Not initially, he didn't use Putin's name at first, but once Putin then did his first presidential address, I think Prozhokin came out and said, criticised Putin directly for the first time. And that was a kind of another step up, if you like, where it's no longer just about inter-surface rivalries and military uprisings, but suddenly he is now challenging the authority of the president. And that is a big deal. Lots of people were making parallels between the Russian Civil War, the removal of Russian troops from the front lines of the First World War in 1917. I say lots of people. Vladimir Putin himself was making this direct comparison. He was saying it's a major betrayal of the Russian people. But you're right, it does symbolise this quite core perhaps weakness of Putin and a fracturing around him. And from your understanding of the history of coups, is this something, this display of weakness of a dictator, of a leader, is this something that could quite often lead to perhaps follow-up coups? Could this be something that really is a major blow to Putin and the start of his downfall? 
Well, I think that's the risk. And I like the analogy with the First World War, because if if Putin ends up going on to become more and more Tsar-like and take more and more you know, personally overseeing things and detaching himself from Moscow a bit more, and that's what the Tsar did, and we all know how that ended. And I think that is the risk a little bit, which is he's exposed himself. The weakness is real and it's visible. And so much of authoritarian regimes is based upon the impression the leader is is omnipotent and has full support. And if you dare to rise up and you dare to challenge the leader, it's going to end badly for you. You will be put in jail or you will be killed. And that is the line which everyone is supposed to believe. And now suddenly you see just this chipping away and this challenge and it ending in a way which has exposed the weakness because you're still alive. Uh, we, we don't know what the deal was, but they were talking the other day that the charges against them have not yet been dropped. So there's still a lot of confusion around. But ultimately, you know, the Wagner Group leader is still at large, even if he's in Belarus, and this is a challenge. Now, what can stem from that is that other people, other factions might start to think, oh, hang on a minute. If he can try this and get away with it, maybe we could. Maybe there are cracks. Maybe the regime isn't as stable as Russian propaganda likes to make out. So maybe we could poke here, chip away there, try something here. And, you know, the regime isn't going to collapse tomorrow or whatever. But it just starts to sow those seeds of doubt. I think that's important. It can give sucker to other people or factions who may want to launch a coup of their own. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as listeners will know, we had uh, Anthony Beaver on the podcast recently, and we were talking about the Russian Civil War and the Russian Revolution. And it might be strange to think, you know, how could a smaller group of, of mercenaries take on a nation state? Now, I'm not going to call the Bolsheviks mercenaries, but they were a smaller political group. And they came in as a result of the apathy of the Russian military to seize power in Russia. I mean, much to the detriment of the bourgeoisie and those ruling classes in Russia at the time. But it was a small group. However, realistically, again, when we look at this history, Rory, is it not often the case that actually it's the state's military, the powerful military that comes in to remove the political leader? Yeah, more often than not, there are two types of coups, really. The first is a is an inside job, which is a, technically called a palace revolution, where the king's brother or the, young, the uncle will come in and do a bloodless coup, lock up the king and long live the new king and everything carries on as normal. The other way of doing a coup is from an outside where it is often, as you say, a military leader coming in and overthrowing a president or a prime minister, normally ending up in a military dictatorship. There are two ways of doing it, but small groups can make a big difference. I mean, we all know the history of 
insurgency warfare, for example, is a different setup from what we're talking about here. But at the same time, I mean, that did spring to my mind when I was reading about the Long March. They they managed to take territory, Rostov initially, and they wanted to hold that territory and they wanted to move up towards Moscow whilst holding territory and fighting against the bigger army. And these things can be successful, but they require they require the certainly the apathy of the military. They require broad apathy or acquiescence, passive acquiescence of the wider population as well. I think that's really important. When a, when a military wants to launch a coup, the public has to be kind of detached from politics and cynical almost. And also the other thing that states that are ripe for a coup have is they have a bureaucracy which, is, which hits this sweet spot. It's well enough developed and sophisticated to be able to carry on as if nothing happened. So you can detach the leadership, new leader in charge, um, but the civil service, the military, the intelligence services, the police forces just carry on. But not too well organised and too sophisticated where those same institutions realise that something illegitimate has happened and don't play ball, which hopefully and in theory is what we'd have in the US and in the in the UK. So there's a, there's a sweet spot. You don't want the bureaucracy and the military to be too underdeveloped and too tied to the personality of that leader. But at the same time, they want to be too overdeveloped and sophisticated to be aware that something bad has happened. Do you have any parallels, any analogies from history that could perhaps help us understand how this might happen successfully. I mean, I was trying to think back just a couple of years ago in Ethiopia. We had the Tigray rebels marching, that long march, onto the capital. And they were only stopped by the deployment of air power, by drones, actually, that came in and saved the Ethiopian government from being overthrown. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what would have happened in this case in Russia. You had no deployment of air power, but that would have been coming. That's, of course, if the military and the Russian Air Force were on side, which, you know, by no means can we guarantee that that's the case. But if we do back, look back through this history, are there any examples that we can look at that give us parallels? Yeah, that's the crux, is are the military on side? And it takes a lot of intelligence to try to work this out. And you can imagine the kind of machinations of the plotters wanting to just, you don't want to say, are you up for a plot, mate? Because if the person's not up for plot, you're going to die. So you, you've got to just, you can imagine it, they're, they're putting the feelers out. If we do this, is that person on side? Is that person going to stand aside? It's very, very delicate and to try and work all this out. Um, there are a couple of interesting examples of during the Cold War, for example. Most famous coups normally involve the CIA, if we're honest. And 1954, Guatemala springs to mind. This is a really interesting episode. Because the president of Guatemala, Garco Darbenth, was leftist and nationalized various industries and cut a long story short, the US didn't particularly like him, uh, went against US interests in a part of the world where the US dominated. And they wanted to launch a coup against him. They trained this ragtag paramilitary army, this private army, covertly trained by the CIA. And this ragtag private army started to work its way through from jungles of Guatemala up towards Guatemala City. The reason they were successful, uh, which didn't have now, is they had outstanding propaganda 
capabilities. They managed to shape the narrative. And narrative is so, so important. So this ragtag bunch of mercenaries, essentially, were pretty rubbish. And their military campaign against Guatemalan forces was not going all that well. And so what the CIA did was then create black radio stations pretending to be the Guatemalan rebels, saying, the war's going brilliantly, we're killing everybody, we're marching onwards, our Benth's days are numbered, he's going to fall, we're going to take the city. Our Benth hears this, thinks the game's up, and he flees. When the actual mercenaries, the rebel army, weren't particularly impressive. And even the CIA at the time were a bit shocked how quickly it fell, given the actual real-world uh, victories of the mercenaries weren't all that impressive. So I think there's an interesting lesson here, which is you need to have propaganda. You need to have a narrative. You need to be able to shape this, the perceptions of your uprising and the inevitability of success. That is really, really key. It also, and I'm sure for the record, this was not the case now, helps to have you know foreign support from another state. But again, to repeat, I'm not insinuating for a second even though Putin, in his speech, one of his speeches, inevitably blamed Western military and intelligence for being behind all this. I think, despite me giving an example of the CIA, historically, I've seen no evidence to support that they were involved in this particular uprising. And other commentators who will remain nameless have exactly made that claim that the Wagner Group were paid off by the West and sent on this march to Moscow, to which there is no support. But I find the Guatemala case really interesting because, you know, Arbenz in that case committed the heinous crime of trying to return land back to the people from major American-supported conglomerates. And one key thing they had there as well, if maybe I'm wrong, but I think they had an element of US air power support. They had a show of force over the top of the country, which made it look like they had far more power in this ragtag group of rebels, I guess you could call them, than they actually had. But there's also a lesson to be had here, isn't there, Rory? Because the CIA took this as being an absolute perfect way to stage a coup. And they tried to implement something similar in Cuba. They did. The 1950s were the golden era of the CIA. Before Guatemala, just a year before They'd managed to, alongside MI6 in the UK, stage a coup in Iran. So they're flying high right now. And they think that coups are the answer to the problems. They are deniable. They are cheap. They do not escalate into World War Three and nuclear Armageddon. And the CIA, as you can imagine, is blowing its own trumpet to the Eisenhower administration, saying, we, we are your problem solvers. Turn to us and forget gathering intelligence. We can, sh- we can shape the world deniably. And then, of course, they come to try to overthrow Fidel Castro in 1960. And this is the famous Bay of Pigs failed revolution or coup, when again, the Americans were training Cuban exiles and backed by propaganda. They then land in the Bay of Pigs in the south of the island of Cuba. Unfortunately, on this occasion, uh, Fidel Castro was well aware that this was happening. He had been briefed on it almost in real time. The preparations for this coup were incredibly leaky. And in fact, a lot of it was being published in the American press in real time. So Castro was well aware. And it went down as one of the biggest CIA covert action failures of the Cold War. A notorious failure. It didn't then stop them. They carried on trying to subvert, overthrow, and even assassinate Castro through using various other means for a couple of years after. 
afterwards. My favourite of which, I must just say, because it is a, a particularly ridiculous one, was called Elimination by Illumination. This was a plan, right? Don't know if you heard of this one, but it never got off the ground, so I should clarify. The plan involved praying on or playing on the Catholicism of Cubans by staging the supposed second coming of Jesus Christ by firing flares into the sky that are supposed to be shooting stars or something, broadcasting messages, trying to uh, combine that with a coup and get people to rise up and Castro is a you know, godless communist. And that was one of their many crazy plans, which uh, didn't go off the drawing room table. Well, I think we've got an entire other episode we need to record, Rory, <laughs> on the most outlandish coups in history, and we'll have to call it weaponizing Jesus or something. I mean, that's incredibly bizarre. But, I mean, as you say, you know, there are so many reasons that coups can go wrong, and we don't know if Yevgeny Prozogin was looking to stage a coup in the first place. Like you say, he says he wasn't. But the chances are that his days are now numbered, but perhaps Putin's are as well. Rory, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for taking us through this bizarre little snippet of Russian politics and I guess related to the war in Ukraine and helping us to put it into its historical context. You've got to tell us so. Where can we read more about how to stage a coup? Well, conveniently enough, my, my latest book is called how to Stage a Coup and 10 Other Lessons from the World of Secret Statecraft. So there's one chapter on how to stage a coup. There are other chapters on propaganda, assassination, secret wars, sabotage, all of those covert operations which we hear about so much in the news covered in this book. Perfect, Rory. Thank you so much. And you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.